All right, if you got a bulletin on the way, and there's a sermon outline in there, we're working our way through the Gospel of Luke, and today we're going to be in Luke chapter 17. So you might pull that, uh, that outline out, grab a, grab a pen, even if it's not Pastor Curtis's favorite pen, in the pew, and uh, use that uh, to stay with me. Came across a news story this past, just this past week about this guy. Uh, his name is Roy Jernigan, and Roy turned 98 a week and a half ago. Uh, Roy's lived a pretty full life. He worked a summer for Ringley brother Barnum and Bailey Circus back in 1941. Uh, he served in the Navy through World War II and Korea. Then he was a missionary and a pastor for decades. And Roy now lives with his daughter in North Carolina and attributes his, long, his longevity to, and these are his words, uh, to the good Lord and black coffee. <laughs> but what caught my attention was that Roy decided that uh, in order to celebrate his 98th birthday, he would jump out of a perfectly good airplane. Here's a picture of him in, in mid-flight. Um, 98 years old. 98 years old, skydiving for the very first time. Um, I won't be celebrating my 98th birthday that way. <laughs> I make it that long. But uh, the news piece was captioned under the heading, because he's a you know, retired pastor and missionary. It was under the heading, A Leap of Faith. I thought that was kind of interesting. Now, it seems kind of fitting in his case, right? He's leaping from an airplane. And uh, certainly that does take some faith in that, in that uh, parachute. But that leap of faith terminology is often used. You know, we use it sometimes. It's uh, common. And often it is used to describe sort of a reckless decision, maybe, that we don't know how it's going to work out. There's not substantial reason or confidence for it to work out very well. And so we're taking this leap of faith, and that's the way people uh, use that phrase and, and uh, attach it that way. Um, the problem that comes with that, I think, is that many people assume that um, all faith is a leap, right? That all faith is reckless. That all faith is not really based on uh, substantial evidence or uh, certain grounds, and um, and uh, that you know that faith is this irrational part of life. Uh, but if you come to the scriptures, you realize that that's not really an accurate way to use the word. That faith instead is the certainty, this confidence uh, that we have that shapes life. And in a, in a certain way, uh, we all have faith all the time. That faith is very practical. Uh, faith isn't detached from real life at all. We employ faith all the time in our lives. And I can give you some practical examples. Every time that you get on an airplane to fly someplace warm this time of year, you're exercising faith. You're putting faith in, in that plane, in that pilot, that he knows what he's doing. And, you know, uh, that, that whole operation is going to get you safely to where you want to go. Uh, some of you have had surgery, and you know the, the uncertainty that that certainly brings into your heart. But if you've ever undergone surgery, that's an act of faith. You're trusting that doctor, that he uh, has the right credentials and the right experience. Uh, and you're having faith in his ability, faith in the procedure to restore your health. 
There's so many examples. You know, even when a couple uh, gets married, they stand in front of a group of people, they express vows to each other, and it's an act of faith uh, that that spouse is going to keep their promises. There's just so many parts of life in which we exercise faith. We put our trust in someone, and faith is very practical in real life. It's not a leap. It's not a, a stretch. It's not reckless. It's a demonstration of faith in someone or something and practical living. And when it comes to the ultimate questions of life, every person is putting faith in something, is exercising faith somehow. Uh, the atheist even is placing their faith in their confidence that there is no God. That's where their faith is attached. Uh, the secular person, which is probably the most common category of demographics uh, anymore in our world, uh, the secular person is placing his faith in himself and his belief that this is life is all that really matters and that's what I'm going to live for. Um, as Christians, we put our faith in a person. We put our faith in Jesus, God's Son, and that he accomplished all that needs to be done for us to be saved from hell through his death on the cross. Now, faith is this necessary ingredient for life. It's this necessary ingredient for salvation, a hope for heaven, a better life past this life. Last Sunday, we looked at the end of Luke chapter 16, and the parable Jesus told had that in full view. What about life after this life? And are you ready or not uh, for that? But faith is not just for that. Faith is not just uh, a way to access a ticket to heaven when you die. Faith is this tool that we employ in everyday practical living. And in this morning's text, that comes into full view. If you've got a Bible or the Bible app on your phone, find Luke 17. We're going to read a bunch of verses here cover a bunch of verses. Uh, in the section that we are studying, it includes teaching by Jesus and it includes a miracle that Jesus performs. And the content may seem a little bit disjointed, but as I read down through, I want to cover down through verse 19 uh, this morning. As I read down through here, I noticed there is a connection point, and it's that word faith. Uh, in, the, in the teaching section, it all revolves around verse 5, where the apostles ask Jesus to increase their faith. And the miracle part, at the very end, happens because, as the last line states, faith had engaged in this person's heart. So all of this ties together somehow with faith. It is a key in all of this. And I think it highlights for us some areas where faith happens and affects real life. Uh, it, if your faith is active, it'll change some areas of your life, and there's four of them that I want you to think about. So, if you're filling in blanks, here's the first one. Do you have faith that influences others to follow Christ? Do you have faith that influences others? Verse 1, Luke 17. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into a sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. Now those words are directed towards the disciples. He makes similar statements in Matthew 18 and Mark 9 and in those contexts Jesus pulls a little child into the center of the, the group of disciples and uh, is especially focused on the importance of not causing a child to stumble spiritually. Luke doesn't seem to emphasize that but maybe leaves the possibility that Jesus is talking not just about children but also maybe about the tax collectors and sinners that have been uh, so central in the context of the past couple chapters. Um, but he says here, there are, people are going to stumble. 
it's bound to happen. People are going to stumble spiritually. And, you know, as a pastor, that's disappointing. Um, but it happens all the time. And you've probably seen it in the lives of those you care about. And you, maybe if you had it happen in your own life, I think we all stumble to one degree or another. People stumble spiritually. Jesus says that's, that's bound to happen. And he wasn't excusing that, but he was saying, but here's the thing. You need to make sure that you're not the reason for that. That you're not a person who influences somebody else in a way that causes them to trip, causes them to stumble away from following me. Um, because what he says is, is pretty serious there. Woe to anyone through whom that stumbling is caused, through whom that stumbling comes. Woe is a word of weight. It's a sense of disaster. And he says that I really linger on anyone who's the reason for that stumbling. And it comes with an unforgettable picture because he says it would be better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and thrown into the sea than to cause a little one to stumble spiritually. Um, I have the pictures pop up and on my computer this past week. Four, four years ago this past week, I was in Israel. And uh, I took this picture in Capernaum of a first century millstone uh, that likely was used to crush uh, grapes into wine in the um, device that, it, that is there in the picture. But I remember seeing that and just thinking how enormous and how heavy, you know, that millstone is. And that's probably what uh, uh, the people that Jesus was talking to would have in mind. They would think of a huge millstone like that. And realize Jesus' illustration uh, doesn't provide much, uh, much hope for the person that has that tied around their neck. Uh, tie that around somebody's neck and they're in serious trouble. And, and that was exactly what Jesus was saying here. God takes it so very, very seriously. The influence that his followers have over other people. Um, other people's spiritual destinies. And you remember, Jesus just told the story of Lazarus and the rich man. And very clear descriptions of eternal destiny. And from right after that, he moves into this section to say, hey, be really careful. You don't have something to do with influencing somebody and moving in the wrong direction. Uh, you don't want to be a person who caused somebody to trip that way. And so, here's the thing. I want you to think about this. Does your faith influence other people to move towards Christ or to move away? Um, do you have the kind of faith that causes others to stumble or do you have the kind of faith that influences people to turn towards Jesus? Now, there's a couple of levels that you might apply this. I think the obvious one is the one in which shows up, uh, especially in Matthew and, and, and Mark, uh, the application point for, for parents, maybe for grandparents, but I think especially for parents. Uh, if you're a parent, God gives you the responsibility of living your faith in a real way so that uh, those uh, kids under your care, they see in you that Jesus is real, that Jesus has changed your life, that he's central to your every day. So they are influenced, drawn towards God, uh, and uh, are drawn to listen to uh, God's plan in his word for salvation for themselves. Last Sunday we witnessed uh, believer's baptism. And uh, we don't do that with babies here. 
uh, we dedicate babies, and we're going to do that next Sunday. That'll be a, a fun part of the morning. But we don't baptize them because babies uh, don't have the capacity yet to make a decision of faith. It's called believer's baptism because baptism follows a person's decision of faith. And babies can't make that decision just yet. And the sad thing is that some never do. Ultimately, they make their own choice. It is their own responsibility. Often you hear uh, in a derogatory way, I can't believe that God would send anyone to hell. And the fact is God doesn't send anyone to hell. People go there because of their own decisions, because of their own rejection of their choice to refuse God's answer. And I think it's important to, to say that parents, too, are not ultimately responsible for the spiritual destiny of their kids. They have to grow up and make their own decisions of faith. But we carry a ton of influence as parents. We really do. Carry a ton of influence um, for the spiritual destiny of our children. And, and um, if faith is an add-on, an extra, something you could take or leave in life, um, it's going to be a non-starter in your kids. Um, but if your kids see in you that, that your relationship with Jesus is real, that it changes life every day, uh, that you uh, is a non-negotiable priority to spend time in His Word and prayer, that church is a critical aspect of your life and your family, um, they're going to be drawn to faith. There's implications for that. It affects those that look up to us. Your faith will radically alter the trajectory of their lives and, and influence and influence their spiritual eternity. Parents bear a huge responsibility. Now, we ought to take that seriously because God takes it seriously right here. Um, that's, to me, the highest level where this applies. But it expands out into so many other areas of life, too. You know, on the job, in your school, in your neighborhood, with your family. Do you have the type of faith that influences others to follow Jesus? Or do you have the type of faith that maybe causes them to have a reason not to? And the type of faith that might give them a reason to stumble away. That's the first one. Now, maybe the most nitty-gritty, down-to-earth way this happens is with the second area. And I worded it this way. Do you have the faith that chooses? Do you have faith that chooses to forgive? Because right from that, he goes into this. Verse 3. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted, planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Now, I find it kind of amusing that it's in response to Jesus' instruction about forgiveness that the disciples say, I, I don't think we can do that. You know, we need your help in order to pull that one off. You're going to have to increase our faith if we're going to be able to, to forgive people like you just said there. And I think that's pretty accurate um, for all of us. The problems we have with people are the toughest problems to navigate in life. But Jesus raises the bar pretty high here. He, he says, if your brother or your sister sins against you, and we've all had that happen, right? We've all been there in that part of it. Uh, but then they turn from it, they repent, they come to you seeking forgiveness. Forgive them. Forgive them. Over and over and over again. Now, what does that mean? Um, 
there's a lot of different quotes that I've used in the past explaining forgiveness. I came across uh, what R.C. Sproul wrote this past week, and I, I love his, I enjoy his wording, and so I want to share what he, he wrote with, with you. He said this about forgiveness. Forgiveness, in biblical terms, means to hold a sin against a person no more. The Bible teaches that when God forgives us, he casts our sin into the sea of forgetfulness and remembers them no more. It would be absurd to interpret this to mean that the omniscient God suddenly suffers from amnesia and can no longer recall that we had transgressed his law. And that's why often I, I have used the phrase that God chooses to not remember our sin against us because God can't really forget in the way that we tend to think of forgiveness or forgetting. Uh, but he says this, God does not forget in that sense, but in a legal sense he forgets. He never brings charges against us again. Authentic forgiveness means that if I say to you, I forgive you, I can never hold that against you again, nor mention it again to you or anyone else. Now, that is not so much an attitude of the heart as a pattern of behavior. We're not to keep a record of past offenses. That is one of the hardest things in the world to do. What Jesus is saying is if a person sins against you seven times in one day, but each time turns and says, I'm sorry, you must forgive him. Luke 17. I think Sproul is right both in his definition about forgiveness, but also that forgiveness is one of the hardest things to do. And the example that Jesus gives here, it almost seems ridiculous, doesn't it? Uh, when Jesus says the same person sins against you seven times in the same day, and seven times comes back, seven times ask you to forgive them. Uh, and Jesus says, you have to, every single time. And it's kind of no wonder the disciples said, well, yeah, we can't do that. We can't do that without your help, Jesus. Uh, you have to increase our faith if we're going to live that way. But he, he doesn't just let them off the hook, you know. We might want to be let off the hook with that, but he doesn't. Instead, he uses that example of the mustard seed as an example of faith. Compared faith is tiny little seed, you know, it might seem small, but when planted, a mustard seed can grow into a, a, a great big tree. And what Jesus is saying, if, that, if you have faith, if you just have a small amount of authentic faith in me, you have the ability to do great things with that. Uh, God can do the most impossible sounding of things. He'll help you to forgive. And it's over and over again in the, in the New Testament especially. Uh, think of what Paul wrote in the end of Ephesians 4. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Biblical forgiveness is, is patterned after the way God has forgiven us and it's motivated by God's forgiveness of us. And, and I get it. You know, sometimes we recoil at that idea of forgiving somebody because it, it feels like we're letting them off the hook, right? Um, they're not paying for what they did, and somebody needs to pay. And that's true. Actually, that's very true. Uh, when you forgive someone, you're absorbing an undeserved cost. You're accepting payment. Um, you're accepting that the debt owed to you won't be paid back. You're paying it yourself. Uh, you're paying for the sin they committed. And it just sounds so wrong. Why would we do that? It sounds so wrong until you stop and think, well, that's exactly what Jesus did for me. Uh, he did not deserve to die on the cross for my messes in my life. But he did. Uh, he forgives. God forgives because God the Son absorbed the payment owed, the debt of your sin. 
he took on himself. And that's how forgiveness works. And it is one of the most blatant evidences of faith in real life. If I really believe Jesus died for my sins and I'm forgiven of all the things that I have done wrong, um, then choosing to forgive someone else in obedience to what God says, that's the way it should work in my life too. It may be hard, but it is one of the most obvious, tangible next steps of authentic faith. Now, some disclaimers I might throw out there. You know, forgiveness does not eliminate consequences all the time. If someone sins against you, breaking the law, they still have to, you know, deal with the consequences of that. Um, forgiveness is not the same thing as eliminating consequences. Forgiveness is not the same thing necessarily as giving your full trust to that person again. Somebody steals from me, I can forgive them, but I'm not going to let them house sit for me either. Uh, those things are not the same thing. But, but don't think that you can say, it doesn't matter what the Bible says, I will never forgive that person. And think that goes unnoticed by God. Jesus says otherwise. Now in the next little bit of verses, uh, Jesus tells a story, and it might actually be connected to forgiveness, but... I want to sort of flesh it out in a slightly different way. I think it includes even more than that. And my third area is this. Do you have faith that's demonstrated through faithful service? Listen to what he says. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now, sit down to eat. Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. And after that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Now what does that story mean? You know, probably the disciples chuckled a little bit at Jesus' statement. Suppose one of you has a servant. Most of them were from the lower rung of society. You know, they couldn't imagine themselves having that type of luxury, having someone work for them. But they could relate to the other side of the story. Uh, this servant had a full schedule, taking care of sheep all day, plowing in the field all day, and then coming home with even more to do. Uh, he, uh, Jesus tells a story and comes home and still has to get dinner ready for the owner of the house. And you hear that and his disciples heard that and might feel sorry for the servant. But you get Jesus' point. While it might be nice if that boss would say, you know what, you've had a rough day, take a break, skip making dinner tonight, we'll order out, something like that. You know, that would be nice to hear. But... Um, uh, no one is surprised that it didn't go that way uh, because it's part of his job. It's his responsibility. And as Jesus says at the end, it's his duty to serve. Uh, one of the uh, commentators, uh, Ralph Davis, used a non-human analogy that's kind of relevant in our time. I think we can all relate to this. He said, which of you, having returned from a trip, would get out of your vehicle and say thank you to the battery for providing consistent starts, praise the headlights for the angelic radiance, pat the tires for rolling along diligently, allowed the brake fluid for doing such a masterful job, and on and on. You wouldn't do that because folks would look at you sideways and wonder what's wrong with you. Why? Why don't you do all of that? Uh, 
Because that is simply what a vehicle is supposed to do. It's his job. And that's what Jesus is saying here. That's his bottom line. Servants recognize their role and serve because that's what their job is. It's their duty. And faith is demonstrated the same way. When we recognize God has given me some things he wants me to do, and I don't always feel, you know, like I got the energy to do it. I don't always feel like I want to do it. But I'm going to do what God called me to do. Faithfully. Our vision statement as a church, it contains four words that our aim is to make disciples of Jesus who worship, link, learn, and serve. And, and those four words were chosen intentionally as we as a group of leaders worked through God's word as to what our church was here for. And that, that is all over our website. Uh, it's a, a line that you find in the bulletin. Uh, disciples of Jesus is what we're trying to accomplish here. Making more disciples of Jesus. And disciples of Jesus do those four things. They worship. Um, they prioritize weekly worship. They prioritize linking with other believers and community. They prioritize learning from God's word. And the last one, they prioritize serving in some way. And that last one comes from a bunch of different passages, Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12, and 14. And this verse in 1 Peter 4, uh, Peter wrote this, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. Each of you should, as faithful stewards of God's grace in various forms. God has equipped every single one of us to do something, to do something. To serve in some way to make God's ministry happen as work go forward. And it's a, it's a dev demonstration, it's an evidence, if you will, that your faith in Jesus is authentic when you're doing what God called you to do. Now, I don't know what that is for you, but I would encourage you to, to ask that question. Am I doing what God's called me to do? Am I serving God in some way? Or am I leaving that for somebody else? Practical faith finds a spot to serve God and steps in. Practical faith is demonstrated through faithful serving. Now we get to the last part is this miraculous story. And it leads me to my last point here. Do you have faith that acknowledges God's blessing with gratitude? Here's the story. Verse 11. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. He was going into a village... As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet, thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. And Jesus asked, Were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Now leprosy uh, refers to a dreaded skin condition. It may be the same thing that is identified as leprosy today. It may be something else. But in any case, it was ostracizing. It was um, painful. It was humiliating. And it may be even life-threatening. And these ten guys have it. And it says they stood at a distance because that was the way they had to go through life. They lived life at a distance. 
they were required to be at a distance from everyone and everything. Their families had to keep a distance. They couldn't go to the synagogue and worship. They had to stay at a distance. They lived life at a distance. And they see Jesus and they cry out, uh, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Have pity on us. And he does. He tells them to go, show themselves to the priest, and all ten start to walk towards the synagogue. And as they are on their way there, they are incredibly healed. It's quite a, if a miracle can be routine, and Jesus kind of pulls this off uh, without fanfare as they're on their way. They're healed. Um, all ten head toward the synagogue. And when the miracle happens, nine keep going, but one stops. One turns around, goes back to Jesus, praising God, thanking Him. And it's an interesting side note there. He was a Samaritan. He was a foreigner from Israel. But he recognized, he recognized that Jesus was the source of that blessing in his life. And he wanted to say thank you. And at the very end, Jesus makes a statement that is hidden, but it's so powerful. He says, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Your faith. Now, that final word where it says it was made you well, it's, it's not the same Greek word that's translated healed back in verse 15. It's also not the same Greek word that's translated cleansed back in verse 14. Totally different word. In most places, that the word that's translated here in the NIV well uh, is used throughout the New Testament. It's referring to salvation. It's being saved from our sin. And the most literal translation would be, your faith has saved you. And it seems rather fitting that Jesus would choose that word at the very end of this miracle. This one man came back to acknowledge that the, the blessing in his life was because of Jesus. He was just overwhelmed with gratitude. He wanted to express that. And Jesus looks at the man and realized, you know what, you have faith that did not just bring about a physical change in your life, but it's changed your heart. It saved your soul. And true faith, true faith shows in a grateful heart. And I think all four of these, if we can put them back together and sort of package them as a unit, I recognize that all of these can be connected in the exact same way. They might seem divergent, and yet they each provide this evidence of saving, authentic faith. If we have true faith, if we've been changed through putting our faith in Jesus Christ, it's going to affect us. It's going to show in our life through influencing others toward Jesus, not not being a stumbling block so that they turn away. Uh, through being willing to forgive those that have sinned against us by faithfully serving God in the ways He's gifted us and by having a heart of gratitude. Uh, counting blessings, especially spiritual blessings, instead of focusing on uh, the things that we wish we had different. All four. Our evidence, all four, are connected. That commitment of faith in Jesus has altered real life. Some time ago, in one of the books I was reading, I came across um, an illustration. The author wrote about a news article he'd seen about a new form of vegetarian. I don't know if you've read of this before, but it's called flexitarian. And the definition basically boils down to this, you know, people that want to be identified as vegetarians, uh, 
just eating vegetables. But they also want some flex in that. They want some flex in the diet there. And so the interviewer was talking with a 28-year-old gal whose words sort of capture the idea. This is what she said. I usually eat vegetarian, but I really like sausage. I can, I can understand that. Maybe I can't understand the first part as much, but it seems like a contradiction. You know, I just eat vegetables unless I can get sausage. And then, you know, then I want to uh, opt out of that. But the author used that, uh, in, in the basis for an illustration. And this, this is what he wrote. Flexitarian is a good way to describe how many people approach their commitment to Christ and the Bible. I really like Jesus, but I don't really like serving. I'm not a big into the idea of going to church. And my resources, they're all spoken for. I love Jesus, but don't ask me. Don't ask me to save sex for marriage. Don't ask me to forgive the person who hurt me. I love Jesus, but I'm not 100% committed. He wrote, they call themselves Christians. They follow Jesus, but they make some exceptions. So when bacon's on the menu, their commitments can be adjusted. But his last line was this one. Following Jesus requires a complete and total commitment. And that's the reason that all these topics come together under the title of practical faith. If your faith in Jesus is real, it'll change every day in practical ways. It'll change how you live. It'll change how I raise my kids, how I talk on my job, how I respond to the wrongs done against me, whether I serve in my church, whether I look at God as one who should give me more good things or one who has blessed me in so many ways that I just have to always say thank you. It's going to show up. Faith will be practical. Faith affects how we live out average days. And the question I want to ask and just challenge you to consider is faith affecting your average days? Does it show? Have you trusted Jesus with saving faith, but then is your faith in God enough to cause you to obey Him and the way you live every single day? And you know, I started talking about that phrase, a leap of faith. Um, in a biblical sense, faith is much less a leap and more a simple step. Uh, I had it explained to me once this way. Picture a man standing at the edge of a pier as a boat is about to embark. He's intellectually confident that the boat is seaworthy, that it has an experienced and trustworthy captain, and that it will reach its destination. He believes in the boat, but he does not have faith in the boat. He does not have faith in the boat until he steps onto the deck and entrusts himself to it. He must transfer his weight from the shore to the boat, trusting it to safely carry him home. I think that's a really good analogy for saving faith. But it's also a good analogy for every step of faith on average days. Do we trust God enough to obey him and move away from uh, what we want to do and how we think we should uh, live life uh, to do what he's called us to do? Um, I'm going to step into this thing called spiritual influence. I'm going to step into this thing called forgiveness. I'm going to step into serving. I'm going to step towards thankfulness. Do I trust God enough to obey Him in the direction that He wants me to go? How does your faith in Jesus affect the way you live on average days? And maybe, what's the next step? 
what's the next step you should take this week? We're going to have communion here, um, and so the deacons are going to get ready for that. I'm going to sing a song, but let's pray for a minute, and then we'll sing together. Father God, thank you so much uh, for some challenging thoughts for me this week, and I hope this morning for all of us to consider, do we trust you enough to obey you? Uh, do we have faith that is uh, just faith to uh, a, a escape hell, maybe, but not really change life? Or do we have real authentic faith like Jesus talked about faith right here? Uh, for all of us, there's probably some way that we can move forward, some way that we ought to have faith that's shaping life for us this week, some way we need to, to grow. And my prayer is as we pause for a minute around the communion elements and really think about what Jesus did, how much we owe him, I, I pray. Uh, I pray we'll make some decisions to take that step of faith, to move forward in our faith, to trust you enough to obey you in that area that you highlight for us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray.